You know, I tried to get them to decorate this room for our series, but they refused to. Um, I, I got a good report from Stacy, and I was, I was able to listen to the message, and he did a great job, other than the fact any time he ran into something difficult, he punted it over to me and said, Seth will cover this. Um, uh, but this week, we're, we're really going to just talk about why are we talking about hell? And uh, when, I, when I brought up that we were going to be doing a near series, somebody asked me, well, what, what's the topic going to be on? I said, well, it's going to be on hell. And they said, wait a minute, so you're, te- you're teaching on hell? I said, yeah. And they said, on a Sunday evening service? And I said, yeah. And they said, you must be trying to shut that thing down. <laughs> uh, but I'm glad you're all here to, to prove them wrong, because this is a, a very important topic. And it's a topic that is oddly silent, uh, not only outside of the church, but also, in, unfortunately, inside of the church. Um, one of the things that's, that's happened, I don't know if you, you track with preaching trends or things like that, but we live in kind of the age of the TED Talk. We live in an age of, of self-improvement, and, and what a lot of sermons have become is nothing dealing with eternity, but just temporal self-improvement, how to live a better life. In fact, if you take some uh, popular Christian, using that word loosely, books, and uh, it cha- you'd, you'd have to drastically alter them in order to get them to talk about eternity. Uh, in, in fact, I found if you took some of the mo- one of the most popular uh, books in our, in our culture is Your Best Life Now. Now, what is the topic of hell? Hell is your worst life later. <laughs> so that, that, that is the, the topic we're going to be addressing. And just because it is so foreign to our ears, because it's so so different, because... Uh, the, the silence is almost deafening on this issue. I wanted to take some time and, and talk about why even talk about this. Sinclair Ferguson, who is a uh, British speaker, uh, once relayed a story from his home country in the UK. He says, A number of years ago, one of the royal princesses of the realm was coming out of a cathedral service in England. And she spoke to the dean of the chapter of that cathedral, and said to him, Is it true, Dean, that there is a place called hell? To which the dean apparently replied, Madam, the scriptures say so. Christian people have always believed so, and the Church of England confesses so. To which she responded, Then in God's name, why do you not tell us so? This is an extremely important topic that we must address. We're going to answer the question, why, do, why are we going to talk about it? And in order to answer that question, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 is, is before the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The passage we're going to look at deals specifically with John the Baptist and his ministry. Uh, We're going to be reading and beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 12. Uh, The the first six or so verses are mainly going to be through for background information. And then verses 7 to 12 is really where we're going to camp out in the text this week. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came 
preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us in your word. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be tender, that our minds would be open to your word and what it has to say to us. Lord, we pray that we might be transformed by your word and conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your word and your spirit working within us. In Jesus' beautiful name, we ask these things, O Heavenly Father. Amen. Now, I mentioned that we're just in this introductory uh, part of this series, going to be talking about why should we talk about hell at all. And the first reason we have in the text is hell is real. That's the first reason. There is a wrath that is coming. You notice that. When John the Baptist warns the Pharisees and Sadducees, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? What's that imply? There's a wrath that's coming. And in fact, as you read through the book of Matthew, one of the great themes is that a day of judgment is coming. And you'd better be prepared for it. There's a judgment coming. There's an unquenchable fire. There's a time when the wheat and the chaff are going to be separated. There's a time when the axe that's laid at the root of every tree that does not bear fruit will cut it down and throw it into a fire. These images that are presented are images that depict the reality that a judgment is coming whose consequences are dire and serious. Uh, the, the, the two images that, that are given, we, we mentioned one of them, and that's just simply an axe laid at the root of the tree. And, and that's an agricultural metaphor. Whenever you, you grew a tree in those days, uh, if it didn't bear good fruit, guess what it was doing? It was depleting the soil. It was using up area, uh, farmable land, 
and, and therefore was causing a detriment. So you put the axe to it and got rid of it and burned it up if it didn't produce what you want it to. Now, uh, Stacy last week, he gave a very great message, and it was on uh, what type of person ends up in hell. Do y'all remember what his, his definition was of the type of person that ends up in hell? He said the, the type of person who ends up in hell is someone who is useless for God's kingdom and its purposes. That's a, that's a pretty powerful statement right there. What's this talking about? It's talking about those who are unfruitful for the kingdom have the axe already laid at the root of the tree. The other analogy that's given is the wheat and the chaff. In in that day and age, one of the things that would happen is uh, when you grew your grains, they would usually have a hard outer husk that had to be removed in order for you to eat it. Uh, and, and, and that was the chaff. So you'd remove that husk, and then you would have a bunch of grain, and then you would have a, a much lighter chaff that was left over. The winnowing fork is used to divide the two. He separates the wheat into the barn, and then the chaff, he says, is burned up. Why? Because it's useless for the purposes of the one who harvested it. Hell is real. There is a judgment coming. Uh, One of the things that's difficult with a a topic like this is we've got to kind of define our terms, and then as we go through, we'll prove that definition. Uh, But in the beginning, I I want to give you a definition. Stacy mentioned it last week, but I want to make sure, uh, if you weren't there, that we're all on the same page. Uh, When I talk about hell, this idea of hell... Uh, The definition we're going to be working with, as I said, we're going to kind of have to prove it as we go along, is hell is the place of eternal conscious torment. Hell is the place of eternal conscious torment separated from the felt presence of God and his grace. Hell is a place of eternal conscious torment separated from the felt presence of God and his grace. And as I said, as we're going through this study, uh, a lot of those issues we're going to talk on and expand upon further, but so we have a working definition as we go forward. I want you to understand hell is that. Now, once we face the fact that hell is a reality, you might say, well, you know, that's a good reason to talk about hell outside of church. But, but surely all the, the good people in here, all the type of people that end up going to a Sunday evening service at, at, at 6 in the afternoon coming back to church, surely you don't need to give the warnings to those type of people. Okay, that was an attempt at humor, y'all. <laughs> uh, surely those people don't need to be warned about the reality of hell. Uh, one of the things that's interesting here, and we see it here in Matthew and we see it throughout the Gospels, is who gets the harshest warnings? Who are coming to him here? Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to him. Now, most of you know this, but these are the religious and political elite of the day. The Pharisees underwent very strenuous set of rules and legal requirements that they set upon themselves in order that they might not even come close to, getting close to, breaking any one of the ceremonial laws of Israel. 
They were kind of the religious elite of their day. The Sadducees were kind of a ruling political religious class. There are lots of uh, priests and others who held kind of a political and kind of mixed religious sense of authority in it. So when these people are, are coming to them, people would be thinking, wait, wait a minute. The, the Pharisees are in danger of hell? The, the Pharisees who have all these extra rules, who go through all these extra ceremonies, who have all this added uh, liturgy, all this added details to their life, in order that they might not transgress the law, they're in danger of it? If these folks are the ones who are inheriting the wrath of God, what help, what hope, what help do any of the rest of us have? For this brings us to our second reason we should study the doctrine of hell. We should study the doctrine of hell because hell is eternally and insidiously dangerous. Hell is eternally and insidiously dangerous. Now, let's let's take the first one. This is something we're going to focus on throughout the series uh, because it's kind of a hot topic in our day and age. Uh, There's many who believe and, and, and say and profess that hell isn't eternal. But look at the end of of verse 12 in this passage. It says, The chaff he will burn with what? Unquenchable fire. Another uh, topic that that comes up is, you know, is the the fire of hell is you know is it metaphorical or is it literal? You know, how 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 are we to understand it? Um, And I really like Timothy Keller's answer to that question. He says. It's probably metaphorical. And he says, whenever he says that, people breathe a sigh of relief. And then he says, for something much worse. And we have that type of description here. Because guess what happens to fire here on earth? It goes out. Once the fuel is consumed, or, or, or once it's separated from its oxygen source, or once it's smothered, it goes out. The kind and quality of this fire is that it will not go out. It will not be quenched. Spurgeon gives this quote focusing upon the eternality of hell. He says, but in hell there is no hope. By the way, that ties back to our our, our definition of hell. Hell is a place separated from the felt presence of God and His grace. Once you're separated from that, you are separated from hope. Without God, there is no hope. But in hell, there is no hope. They have not even the hope of dying, the hope of being annihilated. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell, there is written forever. In the fires, there blaze out the words forever. Up above their heads is written forever. In the fires, Uh, Sorry, I already read that. Their eyes are galled, and their hearts are pained with the thought that it is forever. Oh, if I could tell you tonight that hell would one day be burned out, and that those who were lost might be saved, there would be a jubilee in hell at the very thought of it. But it cannot be. It is forever. Hell is a place 
that exists eternally. As I said, that's something we will dive into in more detail as we continue. And one of the questions we'll have to wrestle with is, how can a good and just God punish temporal creatures for all eternity for what they've done? Next, hell is insidious. Now, now when, I, when I say insidious, I, I mean that it's sneaky. I, I mean, if everybody who thought they weren't going to hell wasn't going to hell, it would be a much less dangerous place. There are many in our pews and there are many in our pulpit who are going to be surprised when Christ comes in his glory. Jesus tells us about this, doesn't he? He warns us about this. He said, there's going to be people and they're going to come to me and they say, Lord, didn't we cast out demons and do all these miraculous works in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, if that passage doesn't send chills down your spine, I don't know what will. Now, my purpose isn't to scare you, but my goal is that you be properly warned. I I don't want to give anyone false assurance who should not have it. I don't want to disturb anybody who should be assured. But one of the things we must do and take seriously is the warnings of Scripture on this topic. As we said, the religious elite of his day were warned about this hell. Now, one of the things I, I want you to realize is that us as church folks have a particular danger, have a particular blindness that can overcome us, that puts us in greater risk of hell. You notice in the passage, what does he, he warn them of? He, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath, of God? God, the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. One of the things we learn throughout Scripture is that some of the people who have the hardest time turning to Christ are those who don't believe that they need to be saved. Notice he, he warns them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They didn't think they had anything to repent of. They thought, my works, what I do for God is building up merit on my account. So when the day of judgment comes, he's going to look at me and say, Whoa, done a lot of good there. You you tithed well. Showed up on Sunday evening sometimes. You know, you're, you're doing really good. Come on in. You're the type of person we want here. So when they come out to John's baptism, it wasn't because they think we're sinners in need of repentance. They're thinking we're righteous people, and this might be another righteous activity we can add to our repertoire. It's something else we, we can add on our list of merit in God's eyes. Saints, it is a, a very dangerous thing to be reliant on your self-righteousness when you come before a holy God. By the way, there's, there's two things that keep us from God. There is sin and self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is much more insidious and is much more dangerous to those of us who come out on a place like this on Sunday nights. Both are a form of self-worship. One's pursuing 
uh, my best life now. One's pursuing my best life later. Both are pursued outside of God's will throughout, through my own power. Hell is an eternal and insidious place. They also assumed that they would be all right because of what they were a part of. So they thought what we do gets us right with God and, and who we are gets us right with God. We're sons of Abraham. We, we've got it made in the shade. We're good. And there are times when this thinking may infect our lives. We may think, well, God's going to accept me because I belong to this denomination. We don't have that as much of a problem in a non-denominational church. You say, maybe God will accept me because of this theology. God, God will expect, accept me because I vote this way. God will accept me because I do these things. And one of the things that begins to creep in our minds is, well, hell is for people not like me. Hell is people for, who have different theology. Who, people who, have, who vote a different way. People who do things different than me. I'm not the type of person that deserves to go to hell. The doctrine of hell is important to warn about. It's important to heed, to make sure that our eternal destiny is secure and we aren't being duped in our own self-righteousness. The first reason we must talk about the doctrine of hell is because hell is real. The second reason we must address the doctrine of hell is because hell is an eternally and insidiously dangerous place. The third reason why it's important to talk about, and it's important to talk about in these, this context of the church, is that the doctrine of hell is theologically vital. One of the things that motivated me to do this series was an article that was put out by the Gospel Coalition. Uh, by The author's name was Peter Gurry. And he wrote an article, and it was basically, I, I, I believe the title of it, and maybe uh, the main point and not the title, but went something like this. It said, are we preaching a hell we don't deserve and a Jesus we do deserve? Now, what's the idea behind that? It's showing there's a connection between your view of hell and your view of Christ. If you start thinking, well, I'm the type of person that deserves heaven. Guess what? Then I deserve Christ's work. Then guess what? It's not grace that's saving you. The doctrine of hell is theologically vital. It affects your view of God's holiness. Is your God a God that must be separate from sin, or is he a God that can tolerate sin? It affects your view of God's justice. Is God just in condemning sinners? Does he allow sin to slip by? Will he accept a bribe of good works to overlook sin? It affects your view of God's love. What did God send his son for? It affects your view of sin and sanctification. What are we saved from? Why did Christ come? What does he offer us? By the way, we see that in this passage as well. He talks about somebody coming after him. John the Baptist does, doesn't he? He says, somebody's coming after me. I baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. By the way, that second part of the passage has been misconstrued in many areas, talking about a baptism with fire. I'd encourage you to look at the context to get what he's talking about. 
By the way, anytime you're reading something in Scripture and you don't understand it, uh, the best thing to do is broaden your parameters of your reading. I've often repeated, and I hope you've heard it somewhere else as well, if you take a text out of its context, all you're left with is a con. All right? So if you just look at that verse, you, you might think, oh, well, well, the Holy Spirit and fire, I want, I want both of those. Uh, well, you better check verse 12, because the type of fire he's talking about isn't the type of fire you want. It says his winnowing fork is in his hand. That's an instrument of agricultural judgment to separate the wheat from the chaff. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Who's he talking about doing this? Jesus. Your view of hell is, is tied to your view of Jesus. Your view of the judgment to come is tied to your view of Jesus. By the way, in the New Testament, I think Stacy might have stole my thunder on this. Do you know who talks about hell more than anybody else? Jesus. It's a topic we may shy away from, but the Scripture doesn't. Uh, in, in order to prepare for this, I went through the book of Matthew just looking for mentions of eternal judgment and things like that. In the book of Matthew, you know, guess how many I found? Some of you already know the answer, so you can't tell. 28. 28 mentions of eternal judgment and damnation. Now, when I look at how often Scripture mentions it and how often we address it, there's a pretty big discrepancy there, isn't there? There's a time coming when Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And there is an eternal binary destiny for every person in this room. Is there anything else more important that we should be discussing? All these things, by the way, your, your view of hell, how, how that affects your sanctification, your sin your view of the judgment to come, that's going to determine how you live in this life. Stacy mentioned that uh, in, in his description of the type of person who ends up in hell as one who is useless for the kingdom of Christ and its purposes, are you working towards that? Becoming somebody who is useful for the kingdom and its purposes. So these are three of the reasons why we need to be discussing hell because hell is real. Because hell is eternally and insidiously dangerous. Because the doctrine of hell is theologically vital. And fourthly, and this is more, most importantly, because of Christ, hell is escapable. Because of Christ, hell is escapable. If there if there were no hope to escape the chains and the doom of damnation, to escape the unquenchable fire, then it might be best just to remain quiet about the topic. Let people enjoy the here and now, and then they'll discover what's in the hereafter afterwards. By the way, one thing you should realize, and I've thought of this this week. I don't know if any of you know Anthony Bourdain. Uh, but he's a very famous uh, chef and uh, is well known for his traveling around the world and enjoying different food. 
That's what he's known for. He committed suicide this week. And and one of the things I, I thought is, if only he had known what comes after. If only he had been warned about what comes after. By the way, he, he enjoyed some of the best things this world had to offer and still found this life meaningless and empty enough to kill himself. For the unbeliever, by the way, this world is the only heaven they will ever experience. That is true. For the believer, this world is the only hell they will ever experience. Because of Christ, hell is escapable. The reality of hell does not have to be the reality of our destiny. Because Christ took the punishment upon himself. Christ took the wrath of God, righteously laid out against all sin and unrighteousness, and took it upon himself. As we talked about in our definition, hell is a place separated from the felt presence of God and His grace. Now that's hard for us to think about who have experienced God's common grace here on this world. I want you to think about how hard must that have been for Christ, the well-beloved Son of God from all eternity, to experience God's righteous wrath against sin and to be separated from that for the first time in all eternity. Hell is escapable. Because of this, we've been entrusted with the gospel. Now, one thing I want to emphasize as as we go through this series, uh, it's not in our ability nor in our power to save people. That is Christ's objective and prerogative. One thing we can do, however, is present the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit will work in a person's life, either as an aroma of life or as an aroma of death. We've been entrusted with a gospel that allows people to escape from eternal condemnation. You remember uh, what's said in the scriptures, that the gates of hell will not prevail against this? I think Cole has mentioned this before, but gates are defensive measures. This isn't saying hell isn't going to be able to overwhelm heaven. This is saying that the gates of hell are going to be knocked down, and it is going to be possible for people whose eternal destiny is damnation to be plucked out of that situation. It is important for us to talk about hell because people need to be warned. By the way, you you warn people you care about. You, You warn people out of love and care and concern for them. That's why the scripture warns us, is because it loves and cares and is concerned about us. There was a group of college students that were driving home for the summer. And as they were going, they were going along uh, one of the highways, but it was one of those, y'all are in Memphis, so if you've driven anywhere away from here, 
you know, those backwoods highways where you get into the small town, it drops down to 25 miles per hour, and they've got the stoplight where you're sitting, nobody else is. So they're, they're driving on the little highway and making really bad time, kind of getting frustrated. And one of them says, hey, do you know what I heard? And I said, what's that? They said the interstate that they're building has been completed, but they just haven't opened it yet. And I said, Really? That would cut quite a lot of time after, off of this little trip. So they got pulled around the orange cones, sectioning it off on the next entrance, and started driving. And sure enough, beautifully paved blacktop, smooth sailing, zero traffic. And uh, in that condition, they obviously began pushing the speed limit a lot more, starting to hit triple digits. And while they were enjoying the amount of time and progress they were making towards their destination, all of a sudden lights came on in their rearview mirror. And a siren began ringing. Uh, I'm sure the driver thought maybe I could outrun him, but decided to pull off to the side. They figured they were in enough trouble as it was. The cop car, instead of pulling behind him, pulled beside him. The officer rolled down his window and said, follow me and started racing off ahead of him. They thought, well, this is certainly unusual. They followed him a couple miles up the road. Going up a hill, he stopped and got out of the vehicle. He said, get out. Now they're really confused. They get out. They walked to the top of that incline, and they found that although the highway had been finished, the overpass had not yet been put in. Unknowingly, they had been hurtling towards their own death. The officer said, I've, I saw y'all traveling the opposite way on the highway. I was five miles away from the nearest exit before I could get on. Once I got on, I put my, floor, my foot to the pedal to the floorboard and got up to 180 miles per hour chasing you down to try and stop you before you got to this point. Why did he do that? Why did he warn them? Because he knew they were headed towards destruction, but he thought there was a chance he could reach them in time. There's an atheist and a magician by the name of Penn Teller. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, And you think that's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not Tell them about that. I mean, if I believed without a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Saints, we have been saved from eternal damnation by a great and glorious Savior. We have been entrusted with that message in a dead and dying world. 
I hope you will pray for boldness, courage, and opportunity to share. I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you words to say when the opportunity arises. People's eternity is at stake. Let's praise the one who saved us for all eternity. Lord, we thank you that when you saw our condition, you did not leave us in that condition, but sent your Son to save us. Lord, we pray that we would live lives that honor and glorify you. Lord, forgive us for neglecting the treasure of the gospel that we possess. May we be bold in warning and warm in inviting people into your presence, into your glory, that they might not have to spend eternity separated from you. We ask these things in the precious and beautiful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.